0: All right. Welcome to another episode of Seize the Moment podcast. And today we have a very special guest. Today we have Christian Miller on. He's the A.C. Reed Professor of Philosophy at Wake Forest University, science contributor at Forbes, and past director of The Character Project, which researched moral character from the perspectives of psychology, philosophy, and theology. He's also the author of The Character Gap, How Good Are We?, and Honesty, The Philosophy and Psychology of a Neglected Virtue. Welcome, Christian.
1: Thank you so much for having me on your show, guys. really appreciate it.
0: Absolutely, man. On. And it's, a, it's been a long time
2: coming. We appreciated your support over the past few years, man.
1: Of course. Well, you guys do a great job. You've had a lot of philosophers on who are uh, doing have much better conversations than I am. But uh, I'm glad <laughs> you're, you thought of me and wanted to have me, have me on your show. So uh, <laughs> let, let's get to it.
2: Absolutely, man. All right. So I'm going to start off with a passage. So this is from Christian's book, The Character Gap. Mm. Christian writes, character traits are different from people's hair color or their sense of humor. Or their intelligence, or their wealth, or their popularity—they are what some—they t- are what someone's moral fiber really is all about. This moral fiber matters. Joseph Stalin was cruel, heartless, insensitive, brutal, and ruthless. These character traits were part of his moral fiber and led him to behave in ways that were horrendous as the leader of the Soviet Union. By some estimates, he was responsible for 20 million or more deaths. Mother Teresa, on the other hand, survived. I'm oh, sorry, ser- served uh, thousands of the desperately poor, sick, and orphaned in India for 45 years. She was loving, compassionate kind, selfless, and forgiving. Those character traits were part of her moral fiber and led her to behave in ways that were saintly. Where do the rest of us fall? And where and are we closer on the spectrum to someone like Stalin or to someone like Mother Teresa, now St. Saint, Saint Teresa of Calcutta? So this is the major question, right? So who are we and what is human nature all about? What does the research tell us?
1: Well, how long do we have? Uh, so, <laughs> I, mean, I, could just, I could just go on on that question and, and fill out all of our time. Uh, so... So I'm thinking about the topic of character. I'm thinking of character philosophically as a matter of good character, which is virtuous character, and bad character, which is vicious character. I'm wondering where we are on a spectrum between virtue and vice. If you think of it as a spectrum and on the one extent there's perfect virtue and the other extent there's perfect vice. And then I think, you know, obviously neither of us are perfectly, none of us are perfectly virtuous, none of us are perfectly vicious. So where are we on that spectrum? Well, at that point, I can't really answer that from my armchair here as a philosopher. I kind of need some empirical data to go on to see how are we doing? How good are we? And I kind of turn to empirical psychology. I look at results in social psychology, and personality psychology, experimental um, uh, setups or um, circumstances Mm -hmm. where participants were put in a situation that would probe their moral character in some way. So situations which would give them an opportunity to lie or to cheat or to steal or to help or to hurt someone else, and see what happens. And so, how well did they behave? And you know, we can dive into some of the particular studies later on if you like. Mm -hmm. But what I was looking at is a kind of cumulative picture. What is the overall picture that's emerging from these studies about how our character, uh, you know, is 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 shaped? Is, um, is normatively evaluated, um, is it good or bad? And to cut to the chase, my conclusion is that there are plenty of studies which find people behaving quite well, and there are plenty of studies which find people behaving not so well. Mm-hmm. And often the differences between the well and not so well, uh, they are matters of small t- environmental changes. So whether there's a pleasant smell in the environment or whether there's a um, stranger who's not helping in the environment Mm. um, or whether um, there's a loud noise in the environment, often these environmental factors are having a significant impact upon people's behavior leading them to behave well or to not behave well. My, My overall conclusion then, and we can certainly unpack this more, but the overall conclusion is that our character is very much a mixed bag. Um, there are good sides to our character, but not good enough to count as virtuous. There are bad sides to our character, but not bad enough to count as vicious. Mm-hmm. And so I want to say we have a mixed character, a mixture of good and bad. So that's what I want to say about most people, at least. I think there's probably going to be a bell curve here. with have some outliers. There are going to be some on the good side, the virtuous people. We can think of Mother Teresa, or if you don't like that example, you can think of Confucius. You can think of Gandhi. You can think of jesus or lincoln or or others harry tubman um, or and there are going to be some outliers on the other side too the stalin's the hitlers and the like uh, but i see those as the exceptions and most of us are in this murky middle of having a mixed bag for our character
0: Right. uh what makes somebody virtuous is it just an it's not necessarily just the act of doing something uh beneficent right i mean sometimes somebody can do something that's good but not for the right reasons right yeah. um
1: You should teach my class on character. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. I entirely agree with you. Um, So I think there are multiple components to it, to having a particular virtue. And then to be a virtuous person in general, you have to have all the virtues. Um, So just just to have a particular virtue, it's not enough to act well, according to that particular virtue. That's one component. You got to have that. So to make it a little bit more concrete, let's let's take one. Um, How about compassion? So to have the virtue of compassion is not enough just to help other people. That's, that, but that has to be one element, that has to be there. If you're, if you're, if you're more like Scrooge, sorry, you don't get the count. Um, what else is involved? Well, like you said, the motivation behind the behavior. What does that look like? Mm-hmm. If it's purely self-interested, I'm helping in order to make a good impression, or I'm helping in order to not feel guilty, or I'm helping in order to get rewards in the afterlife, if it's purely egoistic, that doesn't get count as compassionate motivation and thereby does not get to count as exemplifying the virtue of compassion. So there needs to be a feeling and emotional component to it. There also needs to be a cognitive component to it as well. So a thinking component. you have to be thinking the right kind of thoughts too. So, you know, I, I, I think it's important to help other people. I see this person is in need of help. Um, I should help this person. So a thinking component. A feeling components, give rise to outward behavior, and then at that point we maybe want to add a couple more requirements too, but those I think they're the three key ones. A couple more you might want to add uh, are things like cross situational consistency. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: So Mm -hmm. a compassionate person isn't just compassionate at the hospital, but they're compassionate across situations where you could help others, whether that's the party, whether that's the office, whether that's at home, Um, stability over time. So it's not just enough to be compassionate today. You've got to have a kind of uh, uh, stability to your character tomorrow, the next day, the next day, the next week, the next year. Um, And then there's one more dimension I'll add too. This is probably the most controversial, which is that there's a kind of inner harmony. Mm -hmm. Uh, So if you help others and you even do it for the right reasons, but you're conflicted, and you have to overcome your conflicts, your internal psychological conflicts, that Aristotle at least would have said you're not at the level of uh, virtue yet. Mm
3: -hmm. So Mm -hmm.
1: if you're you're struggling, like uh, part of me wants to help, but part of me wants to sit on the couch and watch the football game, and okay, I finally overcome that tendency to sit on the couch, and I still help the other person, but I had to overcome that obstacle psychologically. Mm -hmm. That shows I'm not internally harmonious in my motivation. And so don't get to count as virtuous. That's the most controversial one, I think, of the different elements. So
3: go
1: ahead.
2: Yeah. And I can imagine that it's controversial because, I mean, if you think about it and I'm not really sure that that exists, I don't think anybody can ever get to that point where they're essentially telling themselves all the time, oh, I'm just going to get up and go do the right thing, despite how difficult it is. I mean, in some sense, right, human nature is kind of selfish in the sense, not in a sense of like. Not to say that we're just,
0: let me, let me take a phrase. I mean, we have egoistic tendencies. Yeah.
2: You know, we're kind of lazy, right? We're all just, we're sort of lazy people. We do the easy thing most of the time. Yeah. We're obsessed with kind of pleasure and we sort of shy away from pain, you know? So not to say that we're out like trying to maliciously hurt anybody or even so much that we're being inconsiderate. I mean, even though a lot of times we are, but I think to say that a person who's fully virtuous, I'm not really sure what that would even look like in the real world. So I can imagine there's some controversy around that.
1: There, there is for sure. So uh, I think we can imagine this happening in isolated incident, uh, mm-hmm. isolated moments, though. I mean, uh, I'm walking along. This is a famous example from Peter Singer. Mm-hmm. And I'm mean, walking in the woods. There's a child who's drowning in a pond. Uh, and there's no one else around. This child has kind of wandered off from, from parents. And no one else is able to help the child. Well, I can like spontaneously and immediately rush over to the pond Reach in and help that child Mm -hmm. out of the ponds and save the child's life. In doing that, I'm not having to overcome any kind of internal struggle. Mm -hmm. It's just kind of almost second nature for me to do that. The 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 challenge is: can we replicate that on a repeated basis across situational and stable elements, Mm -hmm. so that the next time I have an opportunity to help in some other way, and the next time, and the next time, and the next time it becomes that that flow that, that kind of second nature that easy automaticity to my helping then that is a very hard high bar to 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 reach for sure and if we have to do that every time that I would agree with you that looks like it's almost unattainable for human beings. Mm-hmm. Now there's one caveat though. Um, if we're t- there's talking about perfect virtue and then there's talking about virtue. Right. So virtue comes in degrees
3: mm-hmm. it's
1: not all or nothing. That's what Aristotle thought. That's what I think. The Stoics didn't think this. The Stoics thought this either perfect virtue or no virtue. I think that's mm-hmm. not not helpful. Um, mm-hmm. So if you think of virtue coming in degrees, that makes it a little bit more you know uh, manageable, a little bit more attainable for human beings. So yeah, we're not going to get to that perfect effortless flow state all the time, maybe, but we're you know hopefully over the course of our lives gradually making progress and getting better. Right. And that's that's what I think we should shoot for, not shoot for perfect virtue, but shoot for getting better slowly over time.
0: Right. Do you think anyone actually exists today with perfect virtue? <laughs> I <don't>
1: know, <laughs> but... uh, no, I don't, no, no, I don't. And, and uh, that's perfect virtue across the board, absolutely not. Uh, I don't even think anyone has reached perfect virtue for one virtue.
3: Interesting. Oh, wow. like, okay.
1: For compassion or for honesty or for, for anything like that. Um, that's what you asked for today. Now, historically, we could get into some debates about different historical figures and, and that, but today, sorry. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and,
2: and I'm just curious of your perspective here. Do you think that it would actually be virtual if the difficulty were taken away? Like imagine like, let's say if we were just to get up and to say like, hey, wow, this is so easy. I just get up and I'm just this really kind person and I'm always (laughs) generous. And it's so easy for me to do any of these things. Would that actually be virtue if you really remove the hard part, the struggle?
1: Yeah, um, I guess Mm -hmm. part of it matters how you got to be that way. Mm -hmm. Um, It'd be one thing if you were programmed that way or you were like you know, born that way or something like that. And another thing, if through the course of a long life of struggle, Mm-hmm. You eventually got to be that kind of person for whom it was easier. All right. Uh, that that second kind of um, life that that I think I, I'm okay with that um, because it was virtue born through struggle. Um, just like, I mean, m- maybe make some analogies here. Uh, often virtues are compared to skills in other areas of life. So a, a chess master, for example, you know, chess master is played. You know, thousands and thousands of games, lost many of them, had lots of struggles, but eventually gets to the point where, you know, he or she can just see a chessboard and plot out all these moves well in advance. And it becomes very easy, very um, straightforward for that person. Well, that's I think that the hope is the same here with the case of virtue. Um, and if that's if that's how it happens historically, then I think, yeah, that, that's fine with me. That's fine with me.
2: I love that. So, and then just thinking about it, right. And let's say, let's say if we kind of, uh, we looked at it in the context of, you know, let's say sometimes people would think, well, you know, uh, the people I know, they were always like this, right. It's like, you know, when they were kids, they were kind of assholes or they were like really kind and generous and, you know, they sort of grew up to be the same people. Right. So what would you say to somebody that says, well, it's actually more innate, right. Whether you're a good and empathic person or whether you're more so of an asshole, right. That's kind of like how you're born.
1: Um, I would say that that's partially true. Mm -hmm. Um, I think there is some element of truth to that. I'm not, I should say I'm a philosopher. I'm not an empirical researcher. I don't do developmental psychology. So qualify all that, what I'm about to say with my lack of qualifications to say it probably. Um, Mm -hmm. But from what I've read, there does seem to be with respect to personality in general, not just moral character, but our our entire personality, a genetic component to it. Mm -hmm. Um, So that, but not solely a genetic component. So partially genetically influenced, but also... Partially adaptable and malleable
3: mm-hmm.
1: so that can be influenced by upbringing, it can be influenced by life choices, um, it can be influenced by our surroundings later in life. So um, the person who starts off that way and never makes any subsequent progress, um, I would say, you know that's partially on that person. Mm-hmm. You maybe start out that way, maybe that was not not under your control, but then you had opportunities later on to. Make choices to better yourself, and you didn't take advantage of them. Now I have mm-hmm. to know a lot about the person's story, and you know I don't want to I don't want to um, presume anything. But in theory, at least, um, it's just because that's the way you started doesn't necessarily mean that's the way you have to finish.
0: Mm-hmm. Right, and and also the person that we perceive as a as an asshole, as you would say, uh, let's say the person cutting you off in traffic, right? Right. That right. guy's an asshole. He just cut me off. You know, he's not watching where he's driving. Well, even though that may be the case to you, that person, it's, I mean, we don't know too much about that person. Let's mm-hmm. say they're someone's father, loved by their children, actually a nice guy to their friends and a mm-hmm. uh, very good member of their community. But just for that one instance, you know, they portray that uh, uh it may well we perceive it that way so i don't know if it from their perspective it's vicious or not but from our perspective like a sort of vicious trait mm-hmm. or uh, yep. character trait right uh it's interesting right That there's that some people can be assholes to you yes but loved by other people and therefore you just have a different experience of that person but doesn't necessarily mean that they're evil or vicious yeah true right?
1: mm-hmm. you know, it's very very good corrective i think um very good caution that we should keep in mind when we're judging other people there's judging people you know well, and there's judging people you don't know at all. And we, we have this tendency, we see one instance of behavior, and then we rush to judgment about the person's character.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: That's, that's a mistake. The person's character, as we've already talked about, is a matter of how they're disposed to think, which we don't know much about, feel, which we might not know much about either, and act in a variety of different circumstances. So seeing this person perform one action in one case is a bit of evidence, but not usually enough to make any reasonable judgment about their character.
0: Right. Yeah, we're um, missing so many variables yep. that, that could display other traits about that person. So yep. it, it doesn't make sense to make a, a like a snap judgment about them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, well, well what's, right, what's okay. so let me sorry, sorry you,
1: just I, I add one little yeah. personal anecdote here. Um, mm-hmm. it's funny you mentioned that because my wife often gets on my case for. Displaying bad behavior when I'm driving. Mm. Uh, so she says, "Look, you're like a different person when you're driving. You you honk the horn all the time. You're not stopping for stop signs. Well, you know, maybe I shouldn't say that, but um, you know, all this stuff. Like <laughs> people are, people who don't know you're gonna think you're a you're a jerk. Um, and you know, otherwise, you know, maybe you're a decent guy. But um, so uh, I take this personally. You know, hopefully people are not uh, judging me too much based upon my own driving. Mm-hmm. I oh. bad bad behavior."
0: It's fine, uh, everybody does you know, I, I think it's part of being uh anyway, if somebody's uh, quote unquote being themselves, anyway, they're they're gonna be a polarizing figure. Uh, if you try to please everyone, right you're you're not gonna upset anyone, but nobody's really it's it, you won't be that mu- you won't be meaningful to them essentially. Uh, so I don't know, I, I think it's fine to be polarizing as long as you're decent to the people. I yeah, mean, I best. mean it I doesn't
2: know. hurt to also work on some of that bad driving either. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, thought I, I thought I was gonna get a pass. I was like, I was well, you did, Alan. You did, I was you did Alan. Alan's
0: like, you know what, Christian? Yeah. I love you as you are. Yeah, exactly. I'm sure I, I promise I've done something before. Even if I think in my mind I'm being uh, good and well-intentioned, yeah. I'm sure somebody has looked at one of my actions and thought, like uh something it was just bad intentions yeah, yeah. Or something, so.
2: well just now you're a, you're an apologist for assholes
0: there you go <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
3: So yeah,
2: what's uh, what was so shocking to me, and I think it's like probably the most fascinating part of this research is how much the environment, and not just the environment, but a person's emotional state, can actually affect their decisions. So you know, when we usually think about character, we think that it's stable over time, and we think, well, you know, if I'm in this particular context, right, and I make you know such a decision that, let's say, if I make a decision that relates to that context, if I'm in a similar context, right, even if it's tweaked by you know whatever a small portion of it or whatever, it doesn't matter. I'm still going to react in the same way, right? So let's say. If I'm, let's say, a helpful a generous person, I'm technically going to help whoever you know needs help, unless like, it's too difficult, or I'm sick, or whatever it is, and that's going to be kind of the same across the board, right? But this research shows that that's actually not true, and that sort of our emotions get in the way. Sometimes they're actually helpful, right? Sometimes they're harmful, and then on top of that, even the environmental circumstances get in the way, and sometimes they actually help us, right? So how does that work?
1: Yeah, 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 absolutely. Very well put. Uh, and it's probably what drew me into this work in the first place. I was fascinated by these results uh very surprising and counterintuitive studies um so i wanted to learn more and dig deeper and see what they taught us about character uh, so let me let me make it a little bit more concrete by actually giving two examples of studies that work this way just like you described uh, i'll do one that has to do with smells and another that has to do with groups so the smell one uh, robert baron a psychologist ran this study in the 1990s where he was looking at helping behavior in shopping malls and the controls were First of all, no one knew that they were actually part of a study. They were just being observed discreetly. Um, These are shoppers who, who, uh, in the first group, were just going by by clothing stores. Uh, So they were walking along, going by these clothing stores, and then they were individually approached and asked to perform a simple helping task. By and large, most of them did not do it. The percentage was, I don't know the exact number right now, but something like 15%. Uh, Another group of shoppers, different ones, same mall, same helping task. These were shoppers who had walked past Mrs. Fields cookies or Cinnabons, which I hopefully hopefully rings a bell with the audience. Uh, you know, <laughs> here here would be Krispy Kreme. We're in Winston Salem, North Carolina, which, <laughs> which is oh, the God. capital. The capital of Krispy Kreme, but <laughs> same kind of thing. Um, and here, what happened? Well, now the sh- the helping rate shoots up to the sixties. Mm -hmm. So it's about 60% helped in the smell group from Ms. Fields cookies or Cinnabons versus about 15% who helped in the control group who walked past the shops, um, the clothing shops. That's stunning. I think exactly what you were talking about, because you would expect if someone's going to help, they're going to help in either situation. Someone's not going to help, they're not going to help in either situation. Why would they help in one and not the other? Well, the deeper story that seems plausible to tell about what's going on here is that there's a, smell that registers in the brain from the cookies or the, you know, whatever, the Cinnabon, uh, leading to a desire, to a good mood, I'm sorry, triggers a good mood, puts you in a momentary pleasant uh, mood, which in turn gives rise to a desire to maintain that good mood. So when you're in a good good mood, you want that mood to continue. So you have this desire to find ways to keep the good mood going up. Here's a chance to help. If I help, that'll probably keep my good mood going, so I'm more inclined to help. That's one way to understand what's going on there. That is not in the picture I would envision of a compassionate person. Right. I would expect a compassionate person to see the need in both situations and help in both situations and not be influenced by a trivial environmental factor like the smell. And so I take that study as a small bit of evidence against widespread compassion.
3: Mm-hmm. It
1: doesn't prove anything. No one study can prove anything, but I cumulatively I aggregate these studies. And that's one of the ones I aggregate from.
3: Yeah.
1: Right. Uh, the other one, I think, is a little bit more um, significant. It, there's more at stake, but it's the same kind of phenomena. Mm-hmm. So this is the, the, the famous group effect or bystander effect, which um, kind of got rolling experimentally in 1968 with a famous study called the Lady in Distress Study. So here's how it goes. Uh, In the standard setup, if you were the participant, you would come into the lab, you would be taken into a room, you'd be Mm -hmm. told, we need you to fill out the survey, you sit down, you work away at the survey, the person in charge leaves. A few minutes later, the person in charge comes back with another person who looks like another participant, tells that person, sit down, fill out the same survey, So now the two of you are working out your surveys. The person in charge has left. A Few minutes more go by. Mm -hmm. Then you hear a loud crash. The person in charge starts yelling and screaming, ow, ow, this this thing I can't get off me. Ow, my leg, my leg, my leg. Now, at this point I'll pause and you say, well, what would you do? If that was you, the participant in the study, what would you do next? Mm You say, of course I would help, right? I to do something. Uh, this is 1960, so you wouldn't like pull out the cell phone probably or, or call, but you would, you know, get up out of your chair, run into the next room, say, are you okay? Can I get, you know, someone to help you or can I, can I help you? Well, what mattered was what the stranger you were with did or didn't do. If the stranger you were with in the room filling out your surveys didn't do anything to help, it's very likely you would not do anything to help. Mm -hmm. Only 7% of participants helped when the stranger they were with did nothing. Mm -hmm. Seven. Now, Mm -hmm. when we change it and there is no other person, there is no stranger in the room with you, you're just alone filling out the survey. In that version, 70% helped. Mm -hmm. So 70% versus 7% where the key change, the environmental difference, was the presence or absence of a helpful stranger. right? Um, Or I guess presence or absence of a stranger who's not helping, I should put it that Mm -hmm. way. Mm -hmm. Um, That's shocking. I mean, I think that's just, and kind of depressing too. Um, (laughs) you, You know, what's going on there? Well, I think there are multiple things going on, but one piece of it is a fear of embarrassment. So there's a psychological story to tell about this case too it involves a desire not to embarrass ourselves in front of others because if you get up and go in the other room and you find out oh actually you misheard what was going on Mm -hmm. there really was no emergency or it was like you know part of a a theater production or whatever and suddenly you look like a fool yeah like that that stranger that a stranger knew there was nothing serious going on you Mm -hmm. didn't you look really silly
3: Mm -hmm.
1: so that keeps you holds you back from helping and uh, we know this is a real phenomenon. It's been replicated many times in the lab, and every month there's a news story along these lines. So and so gets attacked in the subway. No one helps. Right. People watching. So and so gets hit by a car. No one runs. No one does anything to help. It's a sad phenomenon that plays out in real life. And again, evidence for lack of compassion. I think.
0: Right. Right. I heard a, a, this is sort of related, but I, I heard that a good technique to sort of get someone to help you in those situations, even if there are other bystanders, is to uh, identify one particular person and ask them for help. Mm. Well, either if you can by name, sure, but of course you wouldn't if you don't know that person. Mm-hmm. You might say you there, you know, and then the social pressure instead of being divided amongst all these different people interesting gets put all on that one person. Mm-hmm. And then in fact, because you're putting social pressure on them, and now the group sees that mm-hmm. that's even more social pressure, but mm-hmm. I might be getting ahead of myself, but
3: mm-hmm. yeah. no,
1: no, yeah. no that, makes, that makes perfect sense. So another factor of what's, of what's going on here is diffusion of responsibility.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: So when you're in a group, the responsibility to help is diffused over the group doesn't rest just with you. But now in this scenario, you're talking about, you're singled out. And now suddenly there's much more responsibility placed on you to help and that diffusion of responsibility goes away. So, yeah, that makes perfect sense.
2: Right, right, and this reminds me of somebody I once knew. Uh, he was a well, he still is a doctor, and it was so interesting because, like, with him, you never knew what you were getting from him, right? So some days he was really happy, and like the whole office was happy, right? You'd come in, and you knew that he just came back from vacation. He'd give everybody compliments. He might buy lunch, whatever, right? Most of the time, he was miserable, and then he made sure that everybody was miserable right along with him. So every time you got something good, like you know, some sort of compliment or whatever it was some kind of good deed from him, you kind of understood that there was no value behind it, right? It just sort of like like he was kind of perpetuating his own good mood because, you know, it helped him to help others. And he's like, oh, great. Now everybody's happy, right? I don't want to be upset looking at sad people. So let me find a way to make them happy. So why do why do things like that happen? So because especially when, you know, we think about people who are not just professionals, but adults, right? How come, how come there's such a, I guess, sort of a paucity of like values, right? Why is it that people more so rely on their environments as opposed to some internal kind of core of who they're supposed to be and who they want to be?
1: Well, so I think it's not either or. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm going to say it's both. Um, Let me give you a little bit of of background context. Mm -hmm. Um, There was a movement in psychology in the 1960s and 70s called situationism. And that movement tried to make the case that pretty much environment is everything, Mm -hmm. or at least it's it's the most important thing. So situational forces are what cause behavior, not internal factors in the person, um, so that that was a really popular view for some time, but then it's gone out of out of favor, and been replaced with another idea, which I think is more more plausible both intuitively and scientifically, which is that it's it's both. So there, are, of course, environment matters, but also there are internal factors in us, which are impinged upon by our environment. Mm-hmm. And then collectively, both the environment and the internal psychology, the beliefs, desires, emotions, feelings, the like, collectively or jointly lead to action. Now that, that's very abstract. So let me um, try to make, make it a little bit more uh, uh, relatable, both with the examples we just talked about. And then let me give you a little bit more of an optimistic take on this too, because you were, sound like you're a little bit of down the dump. So let me make it a little, <laughs> bit, a little bit better. Um, so, so with the examples we just had, It wasn't that um, the smell just immediately caused the person to help, kind of bypassing anything internal to the person. No, the smell had a situational impact, but that was mediated through a desire to maintain a good mood. Mm -hmm. The internal values and desires matter. Mm -hmm. Same thing with the group effect. It's not like the lack of helping by the stranger just causes you to not help. It's mediated by the fear of embarrassment. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's always going on, I think. Now, well, how about what those values look like? The what examples we focused on so far tend to be a little bit more depressing. You know, why aren't people caring about the right things? Why aren't they stepping up to the plate? Where are their good values? Right. But, but my story is a story of mixed character. It's not a story of bad character. So I think right alongside some of those Values which are a little disappointing, or maybe some very disappointing, are some values which are darn impressive. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, they're both there. It's just not, we haven't uh, illustrated that yet. So um, to give you a, a kind of uh, two illustrations if I may, or at least one that uh, you can Please. tell me if it's too okay. much. Um, uh, one having to do with helping again and empathy and then sw- switching gears to honesty. We haven't talked about cheating and, and that kind of thing. Um, In the case of helping when it's triggered by empathy. So you try to project yourself into the situation of the other person and see the person's situation from his or her own perspective. Mm -hmm. Not from your perspective, but from the other person's perspective. And understand what they're going through and what suffering they might be experiencing. There's good experimental research which suggests that people will help a lot more. And for selfless reasons.
3: Mm -hmm.
1: not egoistically, but selflessly. Though their values in that case, I think are the values you'd expect of a compassionate person when they're empathizing with the suffering of others. And then to give a a rather different kind of example, in the case of things like cheating, well, of course, students cheat. I'm a professor. I'm well aware of that. Of course, the studies back that up. You put students in different situations and find that, yeah, they're going to be tempted to cheat. And yeah they're going to give them that temptation to cheat often but there are times in which you can trigger their values they're more positive they're better values they're better side mm-hmm. and they won't cheat even if they can get away with it and benefit so you can here's a here's a concrete example uh, you can give them a test this is part of a study um where there are 20 problems 50 cents per correct answer um They know that going in. So they're going to be paid based on their performance. However, they get to grade the test themselves and destroy all the materials and verbally report how well they did. Mm -hmm. And so they have complete license to cheat if they want to. They don't have to, but they can, and they make more money. If they sign, this is at least one one study shows this, I think it needs to be replicated, but in this one study, if they sign their university's honor code, and commit themselves to not lie, cheat, or steal on their exam, then the cheating disappears. No mm-hmm. signs of cheating at all. That's not what I would expect of a dishonest person.
3: I'd right.
1: expect a dishonest person to go through the motions of signing an honor code and then turn right around and cheat for self-interested gain.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And we don't see that happening. So, right. so a it's a bag of values.
2: So, so it's like what you're saying is essentially using the environment for the benefit of the collective.
1: In those cases, yeah, you, yeah, you can use the environment for the good or for the bad. But mm-hmm. in, in doing so, you're also trying to activate or trigger more positive sides to people's psychology. Right. And you're trying to tap into the more positive side because it's not just all negative. It's not just vice. It's not all bad desires. Um, there's a the good and the bad. You're trying to use the environment to tap into the better side of the psychology.
3: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. And so since, you know, for us, consequences are so important. And I think in some way we kind of live and die with consequences, the good and the bad in terms of learning, uh making better decisions, you know, figuring out what we should do, uh, figuring even out who we are, right, who we want to be. Do you feel like in doing this in the long run, let's say if we have a stimulating environment in a positive way, where let's say, you know, we're causing people not to cheat, we're causing people to be honest, we're causing to be helpful, and they see the positive results, right? That somewhere down the line, you could kind of remove the stimulus where the person could say, hey, no, I'd rather make, this decision because I've seen the outcomes right as opposed to you know my more natural kind of let's say selfish choices my more egoistic choices where yeah they kind of they're kind of cool in the short term but in the long run you know maybe kind of it's sort of debilitating in a way because uh, let's say I lose people's trust uh, people don't necessarily want to be in relationships with me you know etc whereas in this case right even though we have to kind of prod them to make good decisions over the long run they see like oh no these good decisions are actually not only good for me but they're good for the community and it's this kind of you know what we call a virtuous cycle so would you say that that that's that's what happens or is it something else?
1: Well, I think that's what can happen. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's what I hope would happen, Mm -hmm. but there's no guarantee that it will happen. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's how I think about trying to motivate people to become more virtuous in general. Mm -hmm. Um, So not just the specific discussion we're having here of uh, structuring the environment to get people to behave better, but just whenever we're talking about virtue, why should I care about this? Why is it important? Why should it matter to me that I've become a more virtuous person? Right. And I think the starting point for many people needs to be, or, or it's helpful that it be self-interested. Right. You, so you start with, uh, look, it's actually beneficial to be virtuous. There's good empirical evidence connecting a virtuous way of life to self-interested benefits. Mm-hmm. Things like longer lifespan, better health, lower depression, greater um, academic achievements, et cetera, et cetera. But if that was the end of the discussion, that wouldn't take us as far as I'd hope we would go.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: We start, we could start with the self-interested benefits, but virtue, as we've already talked about, is a matter not just of action, but also of motivation. And if you stay at the level of self-interest, you're not actually going to become a virtuous person.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: So the hope is that over time in acting virtuously, you come to see the value in that in its own right Mm -hmm. for its own sake intrinsically. This is just a good thing to do and a good way to live one's life and a good way to be a person. And so the motivation changes, maybe not even, you don't even recognize it perhaps, but hopefully over time it suddenly changes from being all about self interested benefits to caring about these things because they're good things to care about. Um, a good way to
0: live. Yeah, so what's interesting to me is I could, yeah, I could sort of reason that if someone started from the level of self-interest, which uh, makes sense, if somebody is not interested necessarily in becoming virtuous, but then Mm -hmm. let's say you you want to expose them to that idea, so you you go from that sort of, that root, the root of that motivation would be self-interest, like it benefits you in all these kinds of ways. What's good is once they kind of start down that path, Uh, They probably would come to the realization that in order to truly exhibit uh, virtuous characteristics, you'd have to sort of be, not sort of, you'd have to be congruent with your uh, thoughts, feelings, and actions. So you couldn't even really, uh, you wouldn't even be imitating it. If you're doing it perfectly, then you must be that way. And then you might, that self-interested person might make that transition at that point uh, because you know h- how else can you be that way except it, it sounds like a hard you know it, feel, it feels like i'm saying some not mumbo jumbo <laughs> but you know what i'm saying right, like right. you have to be you have to be that you know oh well, yeah, yeah you talk yeah. about character like essentially like the the sort
2: of end here is to be a good person
0: like you can't imitate it you have to be it in mm-hmm. order to actually be it wow it's so bad i, don't like <laughs> I, I try to save you <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> no
1: no 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 it makes sense to me i mean so the point yeah. is you, you know, initially, what's the best you can do? Maybe it's just act well. Yeah. Right. Maybe, maybe, maybe the, the motivation isn't virtuous yet. Maybe the character, the good character isn't in place yet. But at least you're acting well. And over time, that becomes habitual, it becomes a habit, it mm-hmm. becomes second nature. And then you, the hope is that in addition, you're growing to appreciate not just the action, but uh, what's what the action stands for, stands for. Why is this important? Right. Um, you know, uh, I should care about other people for their own sake, not just for how they can benefit me. Mm-hmm. I should care about, I could come to see that the truth matters and telling the truth matters for its own sake mm-hmm. and not just how it could benefit me. Mm-hmm. So the, one's perception can change, one's motivation can change. And so the whole character can evolve in a more virtuous way through hopefully over time, just starting out with habitual action. Right, right. Yeah, that, that, yeah. I, think that's, I think we're on the same page. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and, and then
2: just before we kind of get off of the research part, I think it's really important to touch on this, the Milgram experiments, right? How the hell did a bunch of people end up shocking <laughs> a, uh, I guess, you know, I, it wasn't a cadaver. I guess it was uh, some sort of actor, right? So how, how do we get to this point where a person nearly kills another human being that they can hear suffering, <laughs> suffering and struggling in the, in the other room? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, so there are two questions here. How do the participants effectively kill innocent people. Right. And secondly, how did research labs allow that kind of study to be performed in the first place? Mm-hmm. So two two big big questions. Um so th- for the context um in case some listeners are not as familiar with this, so there's this is arguably the most famous experiment in history of, of psychology. Um, yeah. These are the Milgram experiments from the 1960s done by Stanley Milgram at Yale University. The most he has a lots of different variations to them, but the famous one is you come into the lab as a participant. You're told, we, we want you to administer a test to someone in the next room. Every time that person gets a wrong answer, you're supposed to turn this dial up a little bit more. More wrong answers, a little bit more. More wrong answers, a little bit more. And it's an electric shock dial. So as time goes on, there are more wrong answers. The shock is going to get worse. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you can, you know, you, you, the participants agree to do this. They sit down. They start administering the test. The test is rigged so that there's gonna be a lot of wrong answers. So there's lots of opportunities to turn up the dial. Um, the dial goes all the way up to an XXX level, mm-hmm. suggesting a lethal level of shock. Um, behind you as a participant is an authority figure dressed in a scientific looking outfit, you know, uh, not doing much except if you, the participant, start hesitating or saying, I don't know if I wanna continue, this person will say, please continue. We need you to continue. Now, to be real clear, there was someone in the next room who was a cadaver, right? It was a living person in the next room. This person was an actor and this person was not actually getting shocked. That's, that's, that, so that's important. But mm-hmm. the participant didn't know that. The participant thought, or we have every reason to think that the participant thought that real shocks were being administered. Mm-hmm. And so what happens? Well, the stunning result is As time went on for each participant, they tended to turn the dial up more and more. Mm -hmm. They could have opted out at any point, but over 60% of them went up, 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 all the way to the XXX level. Mm -hmm. And this was not like a sudden change. As the shock dial went higher, the participant, I mean, the the test taker in the next room would do things like scream or pound on the walls or say i don't want to do this anymore get me out of here or say i have a heart condition i mean this was a gradual process there were lots of indicators that there was was immense pain was being caused and yet more than 60 percent went all the way up to the xxx level and effectively killed from their perspective killed an innocent person Mm -hmm. okay um how uh could that happen well we go back to psychology again. It's not just environmental. It has to be mediated through the psychology. And so it looks like part of the story is that we have a strong desire to obey authority figures. And we don't screen that, those authority figures against our moral code as we, much as we should.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: So we're willing to go along with what the authority figure says, even if, morally speaking, it seems immoral. We're willing to do that too, way too much. Uh, how could they carry out this experiment in the first place? Well, the IRB requirements and the ethical standards were a lot laxer in the mm-hmm. 1960s. Um, they, they did replications for a while, but then uh, that, that has not been allowed for the last few decades. Right. Um, so that, that's been shut down, that kind of research, as you might understand, because if you are participants who went through that mm-hmm. and then you t- turn the dial up to the XXX level and then you exited, you have to live with the knowledge that you were a willing murderer.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: That could have caused some serious psychological harm. Mm-hmm. But do they, I mean, of course they're, de- de- they're debriefed afterwards. So they're told, no, 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 one was actually killed. It was all an act. There were oh, no man. actual re- electric shocks being given. So that's, that mitigates it to some extent, but still you have to live with the knowledge that you didn't know that at the time and you were willing to kill. The person. Yeah, yeah. that's tough that's tough right. yeah.
2: I think the hardest thing to swallow is uh the aspect of it where essentially the authority figure takes responsibility and the participant is like oh cool I guess if it's not my fault then it is what it is
1: yeah 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 yeah, yeah. so I'll just go along I'll put I'll diffuse that responsibility and I'll put that responsibility on the authority figure and so I kind of like kind of wipe, wipe my hands and not be you know not be blame worthy for that
2: Right, which is like incredi- incredibly irrational because I mean, if you participate in anything, it, so you might not have the same level of responsibility as the person who's giving you order. sure, but it's you're still sharing that responsibility with the other person. So it's just interesting how the human mind can kind of absolve itself of any guilt by just saying to itself, oh, well, it's black and white, right? This person is responsible. Yeah. I was just, a, I was nobody. I was just a, not even a helping hand. I, I can't even imagine making that argument to myself to say that something that I clearly did, I somehow didn't do.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's right. At least I'm not responsible for. Mm. I I caused it, but I'm not morally blameworthy for it. Right, it's like, (laughs) yeah.
0: yeah. What I like is that you could use that um, for a good purpose, Mm -hmm. essentially. Like, uh, I guess you could then put uh, expectation by an authority figure for someone to behave well, so to speak, right? right? Yeah. I mean, not that that should necessarily be the ideal. You'd hope these would be sort of intrinsic things people would be motivated to sort of, try to pursue ideally but um it is interesting if if uh, manipulation exists if if all these environmental influences are out there but yet we you know know that there's some level of impact we can have or uh, that we can manipulate them ourselves i mean why not if there's already manipulation going on why wouldn't you do it for a Good reason but that could be a yeah. slippery slope I, I can already see this being one of those uh movies where you know that that starts out with like a good intention <laughs> and then somehow it turns into some authoritarian yeah, yeah of
2: course isn't that know, isn't better. that what always happens in history aren't there always good intentions even look at the russian revolution i mean if you think about like workers rights like yeah everybody should have workers rights and sure we should have unions and then somehow it devolves into leninism and then stalinism and then it's like how the fuck did that happen mm-hmm. yeah
1: yep yeah. so i I'm, I'm with you yeah so uh, I would be nervous about that. So, yeah. so who's manipulating the manipulators? Um, yeah. So uh, yeah, if you if you if you trusted the authority figure completely, that was a perfectly virtuous person. That's one thing. But as we've already talked about, humans are a mixed bag, and so I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna look for other ways to get better behavior than that.
2: Yeah, but with.
0: Were going to oh, say something? No, go
2: ahead. Go ahead. I, so I was just going to add, just uh, before we touch, you know, before we kind of get off and start touching on the kind of resolutions here, with the fascinating part of the, Mil- the Milgram experiments, where these variants, where they actually show that people can actually do the right thing, which is super interesting, even with the authority figure in the room. Can you tell us about those, Christian?
1: Yeah. So this plays into the idea of mixed character again. Right. Because if we just look at the main variants, you're going to think, oh, depressing. Evidence of vice were bad people deep down, even though, you know, superficially people might put up a good facade. Uh, but the interesting thing is that this was only one of many variants. And by changing some of the features of the situation, Milgram found that participants were not interested in turning the dial up very much.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: So if most of us were cruel, which would be the relevant vice here. You would expect that they would be quite eager to turn the dial up. But if, for example, there were two authority figures who gave contradictory instructions,
3: mm-hmm.
1: then the amount of shock was, way, was very low. If the authority figure was in the next room and was merely speaking over the phone, the shock level was very low. If there was no th- authority figure at all, the shock level was very low. So you can get um, the opposite kind of behavior, people acting admirably by, again, manipulating the features of the situation, And in this, in doing so, bringing out maybe a better side of people's character. Mm -hmm. So I think we really need to tell both sides of the story. it, It really is a mixed bag.
2: Yeah. I love that. I mean, it shows us that there's, there's a little bit of hope in that obviously we're not terrible people. Because I mean, I, just looking at it on the surface, I mean, that's the version I think the public usually gets of the Milgram experiments. Like there's now been a movie made of it. Uh, it's obviously in every introductory is like psychology textbook. I learned about it in my undergrad mm-hmm. psych courses. I actually, until your book, I've never read the variants on it. So I was like, oh my God, like people are just fucking terrible. Like this. Is <laughs> yeah, I've never seen the variants oh, before. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. In school, they actually don't teach you about the variants. No, so you actually just hear the, the main experiments, the ones Ones that are like shocking.
1: Huh. Mm-hmm. That's right. Uh, yeah, that, that's very common. Your experience is very common. I highly recommend his book. It's called *Obedience to Authority*, published mm-hmm. in 1974. It's very readable, very accessible, and he goes through all the different variants. So, check it mm-hmm. check it out if you have time.
2: I love it. Okay, all right. So solutions, right? So now, what do we do? How do we make people better?
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs>
2: sure. I was going to be like, uh, how do we cultivate virtue? And of course.
1: Yeah.
2: Sure. Well, if you want to make it intellectual sounding. Right?
1: <laughs> Well, th- I mean, there's no. First of all, um, there's no pill to swallow here. I mean, mm-hmm. there's no easy answers. So we should go into this with realistic expectations that um, if there is going to be pr- virtue promoted, it's a slow, mm-hmm. gradual process with lots of setbacks and um, and hardships in the you know th- throughout. So uh, let's mm-hmm. temper expectations. So what I say in the, towards the end of the character gap book is that there are a number of strategies you can adopt to try and become a better person, have kind of practical strategies. I don't want to leave people with you're, you're a mixed bag, <laughs> face, face the facts, see you later. Um, I, you know, I want to like say, you know, well, what can we do next? Um, some of these strategies I don't think are very promising. So I kind of set them aside. And some strategies do seem a little bit more promising. So maybe I could just run through real quickly a couple of them. Um, one is to look to exemplars and moral uh, kind of heroes and saints and role models who have kind of gone before us and gotten there, or at least are farther along than we are.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: They could be historical figures. You can think of Abraham Lincoln for honesty or Harriet Tubman for courage. Often more effective are people close to you in your own life. Um, so friends, maybe maybe each, the two of you, uh, each other. Um, so That was meant to be a joke. Uh, Anyway, (laughs) no, but actually,
3: I
2: just FYI, Alan is actually one of the best human beings I know. Seriously, yeah, so, no, seriously, it's it's crazy. I'm sometimes like I don't know how this guy is so good. Sometimes I want to punch him in the face.
3: No,
0: no, no. his book is completely right. There's times where I'm good, and there's times where I'm... <laughs> in the fucking modesty. I mean, See why I
1: hate him. True. <laughs> so anyway, that was oh, I'm sorry. That's good stuff. I gotta recover recover what I was saying. Um, yes, uh, but you know, fr- friends, family members community leaders, um, you know, employee, people you work with at work uh, who can be kind of tangible reminders and exemplars of what this would look like. So, you know, this is what honesty looks like. I am inspired by that. I want to ha- have my character exemplify that. Mm-hmm. I want to change my life so that better mirrors that person's life. So that's one idea. Um, another idea is having regular reminders, more reminders in our lives. Mm-hmm. um so tangible reminders of what the right thing to do is so it's suggesting that the values are there they just often need to be brought to consciousness brought to center stage mm-hmm. that by the way is what the honor code does when we're talking about that cheating study what the honor code does is you know most people think cheating is wrong but in a situation of temptation they might give in to cheating
3: mm-hmm.
1: but when you have something like the honor code it triggers our values brings them to center stage and then work against things like cheating, mm-hmm. other, you know, other reminders could be um, a daily reading, diaries, um, emails, things that you hang on the wall, um, you know, uh, uh, special readings that you do or, or um, quotes that you like a lot. So that's a second idea of having reminders in your life. And then the last one I'll mention briefly is self-awareness. Mm-hmm. So a greater understanding of the obstacles to virtue, that are in here, are in the head. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we've already kind of covered this pretty thoroughly in our discussion. Greater self-awareness that um, we often will not help in group contexts. We might not have realized that, but now thanks to the research, we can be more aware of the fear of embarrassment, Mm -hmm. Um, more aware of a desire to obey an authority figure, um, like with, from Milgram, uh, more aware of the power of desire to cheat from the cheating research. So that, you know, not our mind, of course, is not always transparent to us. There are some unconscious forces there and we can get greater self-awareness to be aware of them and then to work against them.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: But just like we've talked about it very early on, you know, in a group context where someone is in need and you're ho- finding yourself holding back, you're not helping, well, wait, then you can think to yourself, "Well, wait a minute. Um, what's going on here? Am I holding back for the right reasons, or am I holding back just because I'm afraid of embarrassing myself in front of the group? Right <laughs> No, I, I should recognize that. I don't have a good reason for holding back. I'm probably holding back because of some bad reason. I need to step up the plate and overcome my fear of embarrassment and do the right thing. Right. Uh, so three the three ideas, again, are um, exemplars and role models, more reminders and greater self-awareness. Well, I think those are three things that I've at least come at proposing as helpful strategies or tools along right. the path to virtue. So. Yeah.
2: Moral exemplar seems to be, at least for me, the best one. So I could think of just uh, my, my old college mentor, my philosophy professor, his name was Dr. Tim Stroop. And so when I met him, like initially I kind of looked at him as a rival and I was like, oh, I'm going to kind of show this guy that I am smarter than him, which it was impossible. Like he was pretty much a genius. Um, so, but the point was, I remember as we got to know each other and we became friends, like this was a person I constantly wanted to impress. And so for him, a status was like meaningless. This is a guy who literally left Harvard Law School because he was bored with it and went to become a teacher. So literally, cause he's like, I just want to teach. He's like, I don't want to be a lawyer. And so what's so interesting about that is seeing something like that, but also knowing the expectations that he has of you, you were like, oh man, like you can't, you just, you don't want to fuck up in front of him. Not that he's going to scold you for it or anything along those lines, but you just kind of like a dad, right? You don't want to disappoint him. And so for me, I remember thinking like, wow, man, like this is a person that I could look at and I could think, first of all, I could say he's already just in the kind of body of work and just the things that he's done. He's already like had an incredible life and done wonderful things, but you kind of also want to live up to your. To his expectations for you, and it's also kind of even amazing that he would have those expectations for you. To think like, oh wow, I can actually be as good as he says I can. Yep,
1: yeah, yeah, very that's very powerful. So this illustrates the difference between more historical exemplars and real life exemplars. It's mm-hmm. you know, one thing to study the life of say Harry Tubman or Abraham Lincoln, but it's it's distant, it's remote, it's in the past. They lived in a very different time, in a very different place, with very different challenges than we do. But having someone in the here and now, in your personal space, so to speak, who you can tangibly see as this person is better than I am, right? But I want to be more like them, and this person shows that it's possible. This this perfect proves that it's possible to be better. Uh, what can I do to be more like them? Mm-hmm. Uh, that can be very, very psychologically powerful and effective. Yeah. Yep.
0: Yep. Remember, I used to be so uh, preoccupied in my early twenties with trying to be the most virtuous person. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, I, I would get into literature, like Eastern philosophy, like uh, the ego, and once you conquer the ego, you're you'll be enlightened, <laughs> and that you know that narrative, yeah, right? Right, right. right. Um, and it's not that there's anything wrong with that narrative, but uh, then uh, there was once time I was listening to a a, a lecture, uh, audio lecture by Alan Watts. And he said something very interesting, which sort of reminds me of the message in your book, you know that we all exist on a spectrum, that we're not altogether virtuous, not altogether vicious. He had this quote was like uh, a holy person is not what you that what you imagine them to be to be this person, this saintly figure uh, uh, filled with light. Uh, it's A holy person is someone, who is whole, someone who has uh, reconciled both their light and their darkness. And for some reason, when I heard that, even though I know he's essentially pointing a little bit to something else, not too related, but it, it reminded me that, you know, uh, uh, people uh, like you said, like your book's message, they exist on a, on a spectrum nobody's uh, perfect. And mm-hmm. I understand that he's talking about being whole, so it's a little bit of a different conversation. So
2: yeah, integrating the shadow that but, you
0: are in some sense the bad parts too. But but it reminded me that there's there's good and bad, and reconciling the good and the bad is is important, not just necessarily seeking to just be as as good as possible. But that is a good aim as well. Of just yeah, right, right. So I just so, reminded me. I just yeah, love Alan Watts. So, yeah, yeah. No,
1: that's that's very good. So I mean, it's also a, a nice reminder about exemplars. which is that it's good to real-world exemplars are exemplary in some area, Mm -hmm. but they also usually have some other areas of their life where they're not exemplary. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: So, you know, Abraham Lincoln was exemplary with respect to honesty, but not with across the board. Martin Luther King, Gandhi, you know, on on the cover of the book, um, I've, I've got a spectrum here, Hitler on the bottom, I've got Gandhi on the top here, I can't tell you how many people have told me, well, wait a minute, what didn't Gandhi have some areas of his life where he was, he had some problematic behavior, right? So um, all by way of saying that even the moral exemplars, you want to kind of look to them with a grain of salt, say, I'm going to try and emulate some aspect of their life, but not necessarily all of it, mm-hmm. you've got to par- parse through the good and the bad and, and kind of lock onto the good and try to emulate that.
0: Right. So. of course yeah like alan watts for example he, i believe he had a uh alcoholism uh issue towards the end of his life or something like that Need mm-hmm. to look into it a bit more but his his record's not completely clean so i, I agree with you mm-hmm.
2: all right so wait, i actually didn't have a question for both of you let's st- I, we'll start off with christian first so for both of you who are your moral exemplars
3: uh
1: uh that's yeah that, that's a good question um i should have a, a quick answer um so I'll, I'll give you some historical and some real world contemporary ones um mm-hmm. so historical ones uh i i kind of lincoln i've mentioned a couple of times I've, i'm doing a lot of work on honesty that's what makes a lot of sense harry tubman i've mentioned a couple of times for courage that makes a lot of sense i think jesus is a big exemplar for me too um confucius and socrates so we haven't mentioned at all so socrates you know, maybe the most exemplary philosopher for his life in the history of Western philosophy. Mm-hmm. So I, I love Socrates. Um, in my, my own kind of personal life, um, my parents, uh, my wife, um, my kids, uh, interesting that the, even though the young kids, they're exemplars for me of lots of things like how to look at the world in a innocence. And, and kind of childlike way. I think that, mm-hmm. that's a really important thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I think the, the, those are really close to me. Um, and then there have been teachers throughout my life who, uh, similar to your story, um, who have been exemplars along the way. Uh, someone named in high school named Dr. Bible, if you believe it <laughs> is, that really is his name, Dr. Bible. That was a high school- um, He was a Buddhist.
3: <laughs> right, right. <laughs> right or, or, or an atheist. <laughs>
1: uh, yeah, um, uh, you know, and so, so there's key moments throughout my life where I've had these teachers who have been exemplars of not only how to think and to be good a philosopher, but how to be a good person as well. Um, so yeah, now I love that I'll book. turn it turn over to you.
0: Let's go, mm. Alan. I can't top that. No, i <laughs> uh, no, So I mean, there are bits and pieces of, like there are people who I definitely view as exemplars that and i but i don't look at them for example like for uh uh, david goggins okay uh in terms of just being able to uh run 117 mile uh marathon his legs were break like breaking down and he's bleeding and there's some kind of endurance going on over there so i kind of respect that but not it's not really a moral exemplar Mm -hmm. i think of like uh i don't know too much like uh, so buddha for instance mm-hmm. sure but then the thing is how, how much uh, his, how much information do we really have about i mean we have a lot of information but uh i don't know how historically accurate all that information is so there's Thank that you. jesus oh great um definitely uh i once viewed my uncle as an exemplar Thank just you. great just great behavior. Always calm around people. Very uh, nice. Always full of wisdom. Uh, when I was younger, he he had me he kind of indulged me in a thought experiment. Although at the time I didn't know it was a thought experiment. I'm not even sure if he meant it that way. Mm-hmm. But he asked me to uh, think of my thoughts as like I'm observing my thoughts, and my thoughts are in some kind of bubble, and just uh, just being there with them, observing them. It wasn't even that. In depth, But what was interesting about that little thought experiment is it's something I was never used to doing before I just would get stuck in the automaticity of my thinking. However, thinking of it like that, it put me in a different perspective where like, this is me here and these are the thoughts here. And it felt like not something that um, I that was out of control, Mm -hmm. for instance, so little things like that were were great pointers. And there are so many great exemplars. It just feels hard to like well, what, what, what about
2: um when you always say, like sort of seek to understand and try to understand the person's perspective like before judging their work. I mean,
0: essentially mean? I yeah, so I get that from a the quote when yeah. I first heard it. Yes, seeking first to understand, then to be understood, which is also in uh, seven habits of highly effective people. But it's a, but that quote is from Saint Francis of okay. Assisi. Mm-hmm. And who knows if he got that from somewhere else too? I'm right, I, right, right. to be fair. So yeah, so yeah. Things like that stick with you. Certain Mm -hmm. quotes, certain sayings. um,
2: Yeah. But what about just the fact that you're trying to understand other people's experiences before judging them? What do you think that's about? I am just curious, because this one, I don't know about it. Where did you get that from? Do you
0: remember? remember? Well, essentially, where did I get it from? Yeah. Oh man. I mean, there's a lot of people that espouse information regarding like how to handle social situations. So I've heard it in lots of different places. I don't know so uh, when I when I was younger uh, Christian um, me and my brother used to fight a lot and I always used to wonder like w- why do we have to fight like th- is this necessary is is there no way that we cannot have a normal like uh, interaction mm-hmm. and, and there's no way we could avoid getting into fights so essentially I just try to with trial and error read as many different pieces of literature that tell you how to interact with people in the most perfect of ways. Mm-hmm and just uh, try to just understand like uh, his perspective why is he getting angry maybe if i understand his perspective then he he can see that i understand his perspective then he'll calm down and i'll calm down as a result or vice versa or something like that we could come to some sort of understanding long story short we get along these days but uh that was a long process mm-hmm. yeah and uh, it's complicated. It's hard to answer on the spot. To be honest, I hear yeah. yeah,
2: and I mean, I guess from your perspective, Christian, we can also turn to literature too, not just moral figures.
1: Yeah, that's right. Uh, for for exemplary purposes, um, I think there are. It doesn't have to be real world people. It doesn't have to be historical people. It can be fictional people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, the in the in the book, I give the example of Les Miserables.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: and so because it's one. I think to me, one of the most powerful moments in fiction, when Jean Valjean. Uh, is kind of on the precipice of going back to prison and his life is going to be ruined
3: mm-hmm.
1: when he's caught stealing the the, the the gold from the priest's house. And the priest, instead of turning him over to the guards and saying, send him back to prison, mm-hmm. says, no, 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 no. I'm giving these to you. And oh, by the way, why didn't you take the candlesticks as well?
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And
1: he says, you know, so he, he gives this, uh, Jean Valjean a second chance at life, he forgives them, and uh, as a result of that, Jean Valjean turns his life around and becomes one of the most exemplary characters in all of Western literature. Right, uh, it's a powerful moment of forgiveness. It mm. demonstrates tangibly what the virtue of forgiveness looks like, in a way that you know sometimes just facts or um, biographical accounts can't. So I I love that moment. That's, I think, a, a powerful example of how literature can serve, can provide us with exemplars too.
3: Yeah.
2: And what I love so much about this is that there's so much hope about this uh, because it's easy to get cynical when you look at the world in terms of like where people are, whether they actually have values, whether they're more kind of impulsive and, you know, in some way kind of environmentally influenced as opposed to like having some sort of inner core guiding them and telling them what to do. So, I mean, I'm happy that you do this research and I can't wait to see just in general where the moral research goes in the coming years.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I, I I wanted to do something that I thought made a difference. I mean, philosophy can sometimes go very abstract, very Mm -hmm. head in the clouds. And philosophical research can kind of get so technical that it just stays at the level of of academia. Mm -hmm. Here, this is an issue that really matters. Character is an issue that really matters to everyone's life, I think, might as well. And there's just more research that needs to be done. Um, So I'm, I'm trying to do what I can to help push that research forward while also communicating that research to a broader audience which doesn't have time to get a PhD in philosophy or get it weighed into the, the philosophy journals. Um, so, you know, something I plan to keep doing for many years in the future. I love that.
2: All right, Alan, final questions for Christian before we go.
0: Oh yes. Uh, if we wanted to follow you, follow your work, where could we find
1: you? Uh, um, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all those places at, at character gap, one word character gap. Um, so, and then I have a website as well. You can email me. Um, I don't keep that a secret. I'm, I welcome people communicating over email. Now, i wanted to talk about some of these issues. Feel free to reach out.
2: Mm-hmm. I love that. Thank awesome. you so much for coming on Thank Christian. You. Super insightful yes. episode. Oh,
1: that was really fun. You guys do great work. And thanks for having me as a guest.
2: Absolutely, man. We'll talk to you soon.
1: Okay. Take care. Thanks. Take care.
2: You too.
0: All right. First of all, I didn't feel the time pass. I know. <laughs> There's one point I looked at my, uh, Phone. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, oh, uh, it's 47 it's minutes. Time passed. to go. 50 <laughs> minutes past. Well, anyway, uh, guys, uh, thank you so much for watching. If you want to follow us, you can follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on Facebook and on Instagram and at Seize underscore podcast on Twitter. Like, subscribe, hit the bell. Hit the bell. We're also on TikTok now at Seize the Moment Podcast as well. And guys, uh, don't forget to check out the book uh, by Christian Miller, The Character <laughs> Gap How Good Are We? Available on Amazon and wherever you get books. Again, thanks for watching. Have a happy uh Yeah, well, yeah. I mean have still have a happy new year, even Uh, though this
3: episode will be out of the New Year.
0: Happy New Year and see you next year.